everybody, and welcome to another episode of Courtside with Bielinson Tennis, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. Tonight, I am joined by my co-host and Hall of Famer, Steve Flink, and also joining us is the current co-tournament director of the China Open, Lars Groff. Lars has been involved in so many different areas in the sport, maybe most notably as the chair umpire for more than 20 years. Steve and I are looking forward to this discussion, so please welcome to the pod, Lars Groff. Lars, thank you for spending time tonight, and uh, you've been involved in so many aspects in the tennis industry. We are very excited to have this conversation with you. Oh, thank you very much for having me. I'm, I'm looking forward to talking to you guys. Listen, I want to tell you, David, briefly, before you start throwing questions Lars' way, that I'm delighted to say that he is a listener of ours. I have it on good authority that he has heard many of our podcasts, and he seems to look upon them favorably. Well, we greatly appreciate that, Lars. Thanks. I'm, I'm learning something every time I listen, so that's good. <laughs> well, I'm listening. sure the listeners are going to, uh, to, to enjoy listening to this episode as well. So, um, you know, we'll get into your newest role as, as the co-tournament director of the China Open in, in a little bit, but it's the end of the year now. I would say it's normally maybe your time to breathe and relax a little bit, but as the tennis world knows, there's a lot of stuff going on right now, especially in China, which we'll, we'll get to later. What are you doing, uh, you know, in the last, last couple of weeks? Last couple of weeks, I went to the WTA finals in Guadalajara and had some meetings with the WTA people there, Steve Simon and Mickey Lawler and Fabricio Keo was the tournament director. Then I went straight to Milan and we had the first ATP meeting since 2020 in, in Miami. So that was a very important meeting. That was the first meeting where the new management actually presented themselves and they presented a, what I call a strategic plan, which is supposed to be launched 2023. So we had a tournament directors meeting there. And then I went straight to Turin. We took a bus on Sunday morning after watching the final where Alcaraz won the next gen. And on Sunday morning, we took a bus straight to Turin, and I was in Turin all week and, uh, and having some meetings and watching the, the finals, which was a great tournament. Wow. wow, a lot of traveling. And now you're home. You finally got home, and you're, you're, you're hopefully able to breathe a little bit now, right? Exactly. Now I'm home. I can breathe. Now I can catch up with all the other things that I haven't had time to do during the year, reading some books, watching some good stuff on Netflix, and uh, follow what's happening in the world. And of course, buying all the Christmas presents. You probably see behind me here on the bed and all the <laughs> for my sisters and their families and, you know, my family. So it's been a lot of, a lot of shopping last week. Got it. Got it. All good stuff. Hey, you know, we mentioned you were a chair umpire um, from over 20 years. You were an ATP tour supervisor, now a co-tournament director, among many other things that you've been involved in in the tennis world. How did you get started? Was tennis a love of yours as, as a child? And I guess, how did you get started working in the tennis industry uh, as a career? When I grew up in Sweden, tennis was a big sport. All kids play tennis. So you play tournaments every, every weekend. And in the summer, you play tennis probably every day. Matches, tournaments, practice. And then in Sweden, at that time, we had a system that the loser of the match has to umpire the next match. And I lost more than I won. <laughs> and like Jimmy Connor said at Wimbledon, you know, here we are at Wimbledon, 128 players and 127 losers. 
So I was one of the 127 losers many times, and uh, we have the umpiring match, and they paid you, I think they paid you at that time, a dollar for a set or $2 for a match. So that was some money for ice cream and candy or whatever. So I just started like that, and uh, that's how I got into umpiring, and it was, you know, nothing planned. And then I had the luck that uh, my grandparents, they lived in Borstad. And Borstad is the tennis mecca of Sweden. And we had this ATP event, of course, that you know, since uh, more than 50 years. And one year I had different, I've been working there in different positions. You know, I was, I was an usher, I was selling the programs, I was taking the flags up and down in the mornings. And then one year they say, Lars, you play tennis, why didn't you become a line umpire? I had no formal training. I just, you know, entered as a line umpire. They told me, sit on the chair. When the ball is out, put your arm out. When the ball is good, make a safe signal. And if you don't see, put your hands in front of your face. And that was 1974. And uh, without any formal training, I was there. Wow. So without any formal training, you start doing it that way. And then... 2009, you're doing the Wimbledon final between Andy Roddick and Roger Federer. Exactly. That was not planned either. And then, yeah, of course... Lars, let me just jump in for a second because I want to get you, I want to hear a lot from you about that. And you and I, of course, have discussed in the past. I just wanted to let David and the listeners know my good fortune because that's when you and I got to know each other. David, I was assigned to do a piece on a leading umpire. It was up to me to decide who the umpire would be. And I just cleared it with with my publication that I was going to write on a, one of the top ATP umpires. So I wandered over to court two, the old court two at Wimbledon on a bright sunny day. And there's Lars sitting with it, you know, by himself. And I went over and I said, Lars, I'd love to write a piece on you. And, uh, and we talked about it, how we, you know, and he was very uh, accommodating and told me how to reach him after the tournament, et cetera. He hadn't gotten the assignment yet. This was a couple of days before he found out that he was going to do that final. And then, of course, I then had the great pleasure of watching him call that match. And it was one of the great umpiring performances I've seen, David, because you never know what you're going to get in a win. First of all, Wimbledon final is the most demanding assignment you can possibly any umpire could possibly take on. Secondly, he's, 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 it's a Roddick Federer final. It's, a, it's sort of an electric atmosphere in the center court. Roddick plays probably the match of his life and loses 16, 14 in the fifth. And uh, Lars, I, I, I want to get Lars, I wanted you to just, for, I've given the background there, talk a little bit about the preparation, which you and I've discussed before and how little you could eat before the match, how little you could, mainly how little you could drink because you weren't going to be able to leave the chair and how you psychologically prepared for the biggest assignment of your life. You know, that was uh, as a big honor to get be selected for the Wimbledon final. And in Wimbledon, they have this procedure that they give you an envelope. And that envelope says which match you're going to do the last couple of days of the tournament. And, you know, I got that envelope so many times. It was a men's quarterfinal, ladies semifinal, doubles final. So I get this envelope and I open the envelope and it says men's singles final. And I think I got that on Wednesday. And then you feel men's singles final. That is Sunday. Now it's Wednesday. So I had basically four days to prepare for this match. And uh, they, I think they gave me another doubles match on 
double semifinal on uh, in the end of the week, just so I should, you know, have some don't being too out of it. So I got that semifinal. And then, you know, every day I was just preparing for it. And the closer it gets, you know, the more careful I was with what I was eating and what, what I was drinking. And I remember in the evening before the match, I went out with a colleague of mine and we went to a restaurant and he said, you're not drinking. I said, no, no I'm, I'm very, very careful here. Even with the water, you know, I drank maybe one glass of water very, very carefully. And I ate, you know, something that I knew was completely safe to eat, some pasta, and there was no spicy sauce or anything on it. And then the next morning I got for breakfast and I realized, you know, now I'm going to do the Wimbledon final. Now I cannot afford to drink anything. Oh. So, so there's no bathroom or snack breaks for you in the chair? No snack breaks. So I go up in the morning and I have a breakfast and I'm very careful what I eat. And then don't drink anything. And then I go to the site and then, you know, preparing for the match, get my, at that time, get my, my, my paperwork and all that before the match. And then I had to go on court. So I was basically on court half an hour before the match started because there were some pictures taking, there was a celebrity coin toss. So then I come on court and I have, you know, an extra sweater with me, my jacket, because I know you start the match and it might be 90 degrees. And then at the end of the match, it could down to be 60 degrees. So I go up in the chair there and this match takes almost five hours. And then the half an hour before the match, you had the preparation with a coin toss. And then after the match, you have the ceremony with a trophy and all that. So I was there out in the court close to six hours. No food, and no, no drink, no bathroom break. No food, no drinks, nothing. Just being ready for the match. And uh, that's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> that's all I chance. You don't listen. The match. You don't want to leave the court and tell the guys, "I need to go to the bathroom." That wouldn't <laughs> look good in television worldwide. So you try to stay in the court and keep your concentration, which is very important. I was lucky because it was not too hot. It was warm, but not too hot. But you know, then when the temperature went down, it's always a risk that you start shivering a little, getting a little cold, and then, of course, some things can happen. You need to go to the bathroom, but I survived, and I, I was preparing a lot for this match, and uh, and that came, you know, as a, as a many, many years of preparations, and, and finally, I got a match like that, so it was, I was ready for it. I was prepared, and I, I knew I could handle a long match. Lars, the thing that I remember from our first discussion about this that, that I find interesting, and I've seen it's, it's been reaffirmed for me many times since, David, in the sense that we, Lars is a great, passionate observer of this game. In addition to being an umpire, as he's told me several times, you know, the first thing he'll do when he gets up in the morning is to check the scores of the latest tournament. Goes right onto his phone. I mean, that, it's just sort of in his DNA. So how did you manage, Lars, to keep the fan in you from intruding into the your professional duties that day because you're watching this match. You know when Roddick wins the first set and goes up 6-2 in the tiebreak in the second set that he's on the verge of establishing a two-set lead that will probably carry him to victory that day. And yet you still you have to bear down hard and sort of keep those thoughts out of your mind. How did you manage that on a such a, and obviously you'd had vast experience by then calling many big matches on the tour and at the slams, but this one was different. So how did you block that stuff out and keep your mind on, on the match at hand? I mean, as you say, I've been watching so many tennis matches and when I am not umpiring, I'm still watching tennis. And 
And when I grew up in Sweden, we had paper newspapers at that time. And I remember I went down in the morning for breakfast. And the first thing I do, I look at the scores from the night before and I watch all these big scores. That was the time when there were 40 tournaments in the United States. And you see all these names, Brian Teacher beat Joan Creek and Kevin Curran lost to David Pate or whatever it was. So tennis has, it's my passion. I love the tennis. And, and I think, you know, that helps because if you're not a big tennis fan, if you're not, I'm not saying you have to be a top player, but if you have, have good knowledge of the sport and you play well, then I think it's easier to concentrate and to follow the game. So I was, I was, I, I knew that I've done so many matches and a guy is up two sets to love and then he loses in, in five. I, I, I remember when I did a final in Rome 2005, Guillermo Correa was up two sets to love. And then a young man, Rafael Nadal, he fought back and he won seven, six in the final set after another five hour match. So I, I was prepared mentally and, and, and I know that the tennis, tennis is that that's the beauty of tennis, that nothing is over until the last point. If it was a soccer game or a football game or whatever, when one team goes up, you know, it's Im almost impossible to get back. But in tennis, you can always get back in a match. And so I think that helped me a lot. And concentration, you know, I, I have a lot of different things I, I think about, you know, when I'm if I get a little tired, I think about something yellow because the tennis ball is yellow to keep my eyes on the tennis ball. Then, of course, I have the, the changeover, which I call the 60 seconds of di diplomacy, where I'm sitting and I can talk to the players and I can tell them something, you know, if they're getting a little slow between the points or if there's something I need to tell them or I can just sit and concentrate. So it, it takes a long time to get to that level. And uh, when you reach it, you have to enjoy every second because you know you only get get to be in that seat a couple of times in the in a Wimbledon final. So so I enjoyed every every minute of it, and uh, I think it, it, it was a big honor to do it. And uh, I always say that you realize it's serious when you say that when the warm up is finished, when you say time to the players and people are talking there's still some sound or whatever and then the players goes out and you say first set first set and erotic to serve ready play suddenly it's completely quiet yes you can hear your own voice you can hear your own breathing when you sit up in the chair so then you realize it's serious before that you know the things are going on they're moving around and suddenly in Wimbledon the crowd is so disciplined it's just amazing but Lars, you know, you had a sense, I'm sure, as the match was unfolding uh, of what kind of work, uh, you know, you were kind of, I'm sure, in the back of your mind, assessing how you were doing and obviously thinking ahead, but also analyzing each each step of the way. Then you have an, an immediate impression, I'm sure, after the match. What did you go back later and then look at a tape? Uh, were you able to sort of enjoy it after the fact, maybe look at a, at a DVD and, and relive it and enjoy it as it was now in your past? Exactly. I've seen that match so many times. I have the DVD. I've been watching it. And I can't believe that I was the umpire in this match. I'm watching myself. <laughs> I mean, and I see how they hit the ball, the big serves from Roddy coming, Federer's huge forehand moving, coming into the net and everything goes so fast. And, you know, I was even more proud of myself than when I watched it afterwards. And of course, you're more relaxed than you can sit and watch and you can think, oh, how could Roddick 
that back and volley. He should never touch yeah. it. That would be yeah. two steps to love, and he probably had a Wimbledon trophy now. But that, that's the charm of tennis. But I watched that match many times, and, and I enjoy it more now. And I've seen it with my children, and uh, it, it's just a great memory to have for the rest of my life. How would you rate memory, Lars, up against the 2000, your last call to Djokovic and Federer in London, the ATP finals, a really fitting way to, for you to conclude uh, a, an, an esteemed umpiring career with these two great all-time greats and you're calling their match in the finals in London. Uh, how would you compare? Is it, are you able to compare the two performances? Obviously much more challenging in a way at Wimbledon being a much longer match. But assess that one in London too, because you wanted you wanted to go out in style. I mean, that one in London, I was extremely lucky. My last match I get was the number one player in the world against the number two player in the world, and the number one player wins seven six seven five, and that was maybe more emotional because I knew this is going to be my last match. I had made up my mind. I'm not going to umpire any more matches. I'm going to stop. So of course, it's more emotional when you do that match, it, it, before the match, when you have the coin toss and all that, you feel, you know, this is something that is going to disappear. I'm doing this match and it was a close match. It's indoors, so it's very fast. And uh, I didn't think about it too much during the match, but the closer to the end of the match, then you start feeling, you know, one day I'm not going to sit there anymore. And then when the match is finished and then Djokovic comes up and shake your hand and give you some compliments, and then um, there's a prize ceremony and, and Federer says in front of the whole crowd, you know, he lost the match and he said, Lars, I want to thank you for what you have done and giving me some nice words. Then, of course, you get a little wet thing in, in your eye there and you start feeling, oh, my God, this is over now. But uh, I think it was uh, it was a very emotional, but it was also a fantastic way to, to finish. I, I'm very, very happy to finish like that. And I've never been in the chair after that. Never done a match. I've been tempted many times people have come try to come you have to do we have an exhibition match here come please do this exhibition match you know stefan edberg and and it's just a nice exhibition match and and even for next year they asked me we have an exhibition in sweden they wanted me to do it i said guys i retired no no you haven't retired you, you can do it still say no i have retired i'm not going to umpire any more matches so it was a it was a very nice ending of it to to be able to do that i'd be very fortunate and uh, you know, I always say I had the best seat in the house and I've been uh, watching the top tennis for, for more than 20 years. So I've been very, very fortunate and I've seen some incredible athletes there and some incredible matches that, that you know, I now when I'm sitting on the side and watching, I can't believe why I could, why I even could umpire those matches because it, it went so fast. The ball came over the net so fast and you have to keep your concentration, but Maybe that was one of my strengths. You know, I could keep the concentration. We have a lot of good umpires. They are fantastic. But then they lose the concentration for a split second. And you make a mistake, and that's, you're going to be remembered for that. Yeah. That's, that's the hard part about being you know, a referee in sports, line umpire. If you, if you do a really good job, you really shouldn't be noticed, right? The only time you get noticed if there's a screw up, and that's a hard, hard thing to do. But um, what a way but to end your career with that things, a lot of people say that a good umpire should not be noticed. I don't right. agree with that because sometimes umpires have to make decisions. That's why right. you're there. You have to make decisions. You have to give the code violation. You have to do the overrule. You have to take control of the match. And if you ask the players, they don't want scorekeepers. They want an umpire who shows passion, 
and take care of the match, shows leadership. If you make a mistake, they're going to accept that mistake because they know you care about the match. But if you sit up in the chair and pretend you don't care, you're only a scorekeeper, then you're going to get the players all over you. And I see that now when I'm not umpiring, I see some top umpires that make a mistake. The player doesn't even rise an eyebrow because they trust that umpire so much. So they know he's human, he made a mistake. Next time, he's not going to make that mistake. So Lars, you're saying, it, it's interesting what you're saying because it, it, an umpire needs to take command. He needs to be able to control the, the, the con, control what's going on out there and, and show that he has a sense of control. I, growing up, had one of my favorite umpires as a kid and early in my professional career, and I wonder what you thought of him, was Frank Hammond. Because Frank came along, as you know, largely before the point penalty system. Eventually, he had to deal with it, starting with the Mackinac in that, in that era with Mackinac and Nastassi in the U.S. Open. But Frank had this sense of being able to appeal to the audience, and he was very colorful and charismatic, but also the players loved him because they knew that he knew what he was doing and they knew he could control the match. What were your thoughts on Frank in that era? Were you familiar with his work? Yeah, I was very familiar with his work, you know, because when I started, Frank Hammond was the, he was the big star umpire at that time. And I remember I was always working in Basel in Switzerland and, and Frank Hammond was there and they have a hydraulic chair. So he went up in the chair and the crowd started applauding him. <laughs> and, and, and he was the first, you know, known umpire. And, and I think his biggest strength was the communication skills. He was very yeah. good with the players, talking to them. And they knew him. He made a mistake, but he could always get out of it by communicating. I, so, he, so he was the one everybody looked up to at that time when tennis was, you know, a very world-class sport with Connors and McEnroe, of course, and with the Borg and Gerolaitis and all those guys. So... I think, you know, today, the, the, the umpiring style that Frank Hammond had would not work as well as it did at that time because he was the first guy. Today, there are many more requirements to being an umpire. But, but at his time, for sure, he was a top umpire and he was very well respected. But now tennis has become so, I wouldn't say technical, but there are so many other ingredients to umpiring a match. Today, you have the Hawkeye, you have the net machine, you have the code of conduct, it's, it's very strict. You have the, the, the television. So if an umpire makes a mistake today, that is on YouTube before the match is finished. Right. So if, if, if you say something to the players that you shouldn't have said, it's out on YouTube and people can listen to it. And you know, you know umpires have been caught in these situations. They have said something to the player that maybe it was good to get the match going on, but maybe it was not correct to say it because other people think that the umpire basically was coaching the player. The, play, the umpire was making sure that the match was going on, but other people say, why is he coaching the player? Why is he telling that to the player? He, at Frank Hammond's time, you could tell Connors or Gerolaitis, please get your act together now. People are paying money to watch this match. Please, <laughs> please try to do your best. If you say that today, you are not... In a, in a position that people are going to appreciate that because they, the opponent is going to say, why? He's coaching the, my opponent. And now I lost the match because the umpire coached. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's a point well taken. I think we know of a match that's somewhat recent that that, was, uh, that, that became an issue. Um, 
I want to move on to what you're currently doing now. I mean, after umpire, what you were an ATP tour supervisor for a number of years, you were then named vice president in January of 2020 um, for the ATP. And then just shortly after that, you accepted the co-tournament director role of the China open in August of 2020, I believe. Um, COVID put a big hiccup in 2020 and 2021 with your event, but talk about how that opportunity came about because, um, I mean, you had just accepted a previous role, vice president of the ATP. Um, I know you have huge plans for this event. I know you have all these, you spend a ton of money in upgrades. Um, talk a little bit about how that all came about. I mean, I thought that I was going to work until for ATP until I retire. That was, you know, the whole thing, become a vice president, working with the rules, working with, you know, officiating department, trying to train the new umpires, the new supervisors. That was my goal. And then suddenly you get a phone call and people ask you, we have a new opportunity here. You want to be a tournament director? And, you know, I, I would say tournament director. I mean, I, I, I'm an official. I'm not a tournament director. No, no, this is a good role for you. And uh, you can still travel. You, you're still going to be involved. You're still going to be involved in the tennis community. And this was something, you know, they grow and grow. And I was dealing with the, 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 the people and management from the China Open. And I met them several times. And we had set a lot of Zoom calls like this or Microsoft Teams. And, and you know, and I asked for things. And they say, yeah, don't worry. We will take care of that. We will take care of that. And if you want to travel, you, we want you to be at all the Grand Slams. We want you to travel to other tournaments. There's no problem. We want you to keep a good relation with the players. So I saw this as an opportunity. I never even think that I would take it. But then I got involved in the women's too. And I knew that uh, WTA had a 1,000 tournament there. And there was only four big ones. It's Indian Wells, Miami, Madrid, and Beijing. And I saw that as a you know, learning thing to work more with WTA, learn how the, the WTA rules and how they run a tournament. And then, of course, ATP 500 tournament. So I saw it as a big challenge. And I've been to China many times. I went to Beijing, I think, 14 times. One year I was there twice. I was there also for the Olympic Games. And, and, and actually during the Olympic Games, I have to tell you, <laughs> that was the only time Federer played in Beijing and he lost. And I was the umpire. He played James Blake. <laughs> and he played on the, I don't remember which day it was, but he played in, in Beijing and he lost. So I was there for the, for the Olympic Games. And then I came back a couple of months later for the, for the tournament. So I always enjoyed working in China. I thought it was a big, big challenge. And uh, you know what it is. You think you have the best job in the world and then somebody else offers you something else. And I've been traveling a lot for the ATP and doing that. But this was an opportunity for me to try something else to, to widen my horizon and to see how tournament tennis is really managed on, on both the ATP and the WTA Tour. And I have learned a lot the last two years. It's amazing to, to all the meetings we have and, you know, all the everything from the ranking to the price money discussions to the category protection of the big tournaments and the, the, the players. What do they want to do and what are the requirements on the players? Are they mandatory events or not? So I learned a lot. And of course, then those, I also see how different ATP and WTA are working. They're different between these two organizations. So it was an opportunity that looking in the mirror, I couldn't say no to. I would probably, I would regret that for the rest of my life. If I didn't, the train came, I had an opportunity to jump on the train 
and I took the train and I haven't regretted it one minute. No fault of doing that. Hopefully we can get the tournament going on because obviously we're, we're hoping to get out of this pandemic and, you know, um, with it being the code tournament director role of the China Open, obviously all headlines um, as the day of this recording, actually, Steve Simon um, just announced that the WTA is suspending tournaments in China. Um, and this all is dealing with obviously the Peng Shui situation. Um, I, I guess if you want to address it, um, what you know, what you obviously you can't speak on what you don't know. Um, this affects this affects the world, not only the tennis world, it affects the world. So um, I'll just kind of leave it at that and, and let you kind of run with it if you have anything to add on that topic. I think it's a, it's a very difficult topic. I think that uh, there has been a similar case on ATP, as you know, that the male player has been accused for something. Now we have a female player who's accusing somebody. So that situation, I think, you know, has to have its investigation and i'm not involved in that there are people who are doing this kind of investigation concerning what what's happening now i think it's above my pay grade it's a it's a very difficult situation for for all involved i mean it, it's it's in, in, very difficult for the tournament it's very difficult for the players so we have to see i mean i'm sure there will be many more discussions in the future between the 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 management from uh, Beijing and the management from the WTA, how this is going to be solved. But, you know, it's sport. And uh, I think it's better that uh, we fight the wars on the tennis court than we fight the wars on the sea. So I think that uh, there will be a solution one day or another. And I think there are many countries that, uh, that people are questioning why we're playing tennis and why we're having tournaments. But any tournament that is played in a country that don't have the same uh, government as we have in this country, still, you always have to evaluate. The players can enter the tournament wherever they go. And the, the players enter the tournament based on their ranking, nothing else. It's not about nationality, wherever they come. And the people who come to the country, the people who live in the country, they can watch the tennis. They can watch the sport. So I think, you know, in the big picture, I think it's better for everybody that we have tennis tournaments all over the world. But I, I, this, this situation for, for sure has to be solved. And I think it will be solved in one day or another, in one way or another. Yeah, Steve I, Simon, go ahead. Large, have you had a lot of, has Steve Simon strikes me as a great leader. And I know from when you and I spoke recently for the piece that I wrote on you, how highly you think of him. Does he, does he keep you in the loop? It's, an, it's, all, it's so difficult for everybody with Steve having to make these critical decisions about the events in China and suspending them. How, how, he's, I'm, tell, whatever, whatever you could just tell us in terms of your discussions with him that would be not off. Uh, I, I don't want you to divulge anything that you wouldn't want to, but uh, tell me about the communication with him and, the, and your sympathy for the job that he has to do as the leader of the WTA and whether you think the ATP will be on the same page. Steve is very transparent. We have communication with him on a regular basis about everything from the schedule, the calendar, the price money, the rule changes, whatever. So minimum every other week we have a call with Steve. And now of course there are more calls and he's very transparent and he is uh, He's very open and communicates very well and he's a good listener. 
And it, it's not only Steve. I mean, Steve has a board. There is a board with three uh, player representatives and there is a, uh, also three tournament directors on the board, tournament representatives. So this, this, is, not only, this is not Steve's decision. He has, to, he has to follow what the board are, are what aim they have and what they want to do. So, so, so they made the decision and uh, that board <clears throat> is, is moving forward. And now we have to see what the next step is, but there will be communication with Steve again very soon. And he keeps, it, keeps everybody informed what's happening. So he's a, he's a great leader and he's very, very, very transparent. Yeah, absolutely, Lars. And he's been and he's handled it beautifully, I think, uh, from a public relations standpoint and a sensitivity toward the players. And do you as someone who's been involved with the ATP as long as you have, Lars, do you feel that th there will be uh, what's the communication like with with WTA and ATP now? Do you believe that the ATP will follows the lead of the WTA and, and suspend their tournaments in China? What What is your sense of that? I mean, during the pandemic, I think that the tennis got closer to each other. The four Grand Slams, ATP, WTA, and ITF, they had something called T7. So that has been uh, every other week, there has been meetings with the governing bodies about how tennis can move forward. And this is about everything from television to rules and to officiating, anti-doping, betting, whatever you mentioned, streaming. So I think there is a very good communication these days between uh, the ATP and the WTA and also with other governing bodies. So what's going to happen in the future with ATP, I don't know. I mean, they, they, you, you saw that uh, the first statement that WTA put out, there was a support from ATP. Yeah. Where, where, where this is now in the big picture, I don't know. This is, uh, I am sure that uh, Andrea and Steve has, uh, has a lot of communication about this and this is going to be brought up on their level. And I'm sure they're both looking to have a, a solution that is good for everybody. Yeah, and the most important thing here, obviously it's such a delicate situation. The most important thing is the safety of, of Peng Shui and, and hopefully that... Uh, that will be reassured to everybody, hopefully uh, sooner rather than later, because it is unsettling. Um, the piece that Steve mentioned earlier for, for the listeners, a wonderful piece written by Steve, um, collaborating with Lars is on tennis.com. It goes a little bit more deeper than to this conversation in, in Lars's career and everything. And it was really well written. So again, that's on uh, tennis.com. You can look in the news, click on the news. You'll see the reporters. You can click on Steve Flink. You'll get all of Steve's work there. So um, great, great article. So great job guys on doing that. Um, with that, I um, want to thank you, Lars, for spending time here. You know, this evening, I know you've been traveling like crazy. I know it's been good to get home for a little bit. We'll let you go. But again, uh, appreciate your time walking us through uh, your really interesting tennis journey. I, I, I can say that pretty safely. Oh, thank you very much. I've been very lucky. I've been very lucky. I've been at the right place at the right time. You know, And, and tennis is, is just a fantastic sport in so many ways. And uh, in Sweden, they have made some research that they say that tennis players, they live longer than people in general so keep playing tennis and you're going to have a healthy life <laughs> we'll agree with that thanks so much Lars thank you Lars thank you.